This broadcast is given in loving memory and Eloi Nishmata and for ascension of her soul of my dear mother, Chaya Bat Menachem Halevi. Before an action and after an action. When we first learn the stories of our forefathers and foremothers in the Torah, we learn them as events that took place in history to people who lived a long time ago. Some of these stories are intriguing and some of them disturbing. Either way, we need to ask the question, what do they have to do with us in our lives? However, the Zohar tells us something very interesting, that although the stories are given to us in a historical format, this is actually only a clothing that covers their actual nature. This is what the Zohar says. Rabbi Shimon said, Woe to the man who says that the Torah's purpose is to tell literal stories and stories of people like Esau and Laban and such like. For if this were so, even in these times, we could make a Torah out of the words of ordinary people, even nicer stories than these. If the purpose of the Torah to, were to demonstrate the affairs of the world, well, the rulers of the world have more excellent matters than those in the Torah, and we could follow them and make a Torah for them in the same way. But in fact, all the words of the Torah are high matters and are of the highest inner meanings. In other words, the Torah is not talking about history, it's talking about spiritual events. Come and see, there is a higher world and a lower world, and they are weighted in the same weight. Israel below is equivalent to the higher angels above. Of the higher angels, it is written, he makes his messengers as spirits. Psalm 104. But when the messengers come down into this world, they have to be clothed in the garment of this world. For if they were not clothed in the garb of this world, they could not survive in this world, and the world could not tolerate them. And if the angels need clothing, how much more does the Torah, which created the angels and all the worlds, and which only exists through her, need clothing? So the Torah came down to this world. If it were not clothed in the garments of the world, which are the stories and words of ordinary people, the world could not tolerate it. And therefore the story that is in the Torah is only the garment of the Torah. Whoever thinks that the garment is the Torah itself, and there is nothing other, is crazy and will not have any portion in the next world. Because of this, David requested, Open my eyes, and I will look in the wonders of your Torah. That is to say, look at what is beneath the garment of the Torah. Come and see, there is a garment which appears to all, and those silly people who, when they see someone dressed nicely, looking splendid in his appearance, don't look further, but judge the person according to the splendor of his garment, they're considering the garment as if it's the body of the person, and considering the body as if it were the soul. Likewise for the Torah, it has a body, which consists of the commandments of the Torah. This body is dressed in garments, which are the stories of this world. Foolish people in the, of the world look only at this garment, which is made up of the stories of the Torah. They don't know more and don't look to see what is beneath this garment.
Those who do no more don't look at the garment, but they look at the body beneath the outer garb. The wise men, the servants of the high king, those who stood at Mount Sinai, look only at the soul within the Torah, which is the chief aspect. This is the Torah itself. In the future to come, they will look on the innermost aspect of the soul of the Torah. Woe to those wicked who say the Torah is only a collection of stories. They're looking at the outer garb and nothing more. Happy are the righteous who look in the Torah as is fitting. Wine cannot sit except in a jug, so the Torah cannot dwell except in this garment. Therefore we need to look only at what is beneath the garment, and all the words and all the stories are garments. Thus the great sage, the Vilna Gaon, wrote that the Peshat of the Torah, the simple recital of the facts as we receive them in our weekly Torah portions, is in fact the most mufshat, the most abstract of all aspects of Torah. Our understanding needs to start with the Sod, the innermost aspect of the Torah that deals with the intentions behind the actions. What were the intentions of our forefathers and foremothers when they acted? What was God's intentions that lie behind the mitzvot of the Torah we are asked to do? In fact, it's only through understanding why our forefathers acted in the ways that are described can we appreciate them and learn from them. If we learn only from their outer actions, we get a very misleading picture. Let me give you a simple example of what I mean. I live on the top of a hill, about 10 minutes walk from a lovely nature reserve. And on my way back from my daily walk, I usually pop into a small mini market. Now, if I were to ask you why I do that, you would most likely reply that the meaning of my action is because I wish to buy something. But the truth is in fact completely different. I pop into the mini market because it's got air conditioning and a quick stroll around the mini market helps me cool off on a hot day before I climb the hill home. What can we learn from this little story? We learn that if we were to look solely at a person's outer actions, we do not understand their actions at all or what they intend by them. We actually interpret them very wrongly. It's no good trying to put ourselves into their place and projecting what we think they mean. This doesn't work even with people we know. And even more so when we're dealing with the great souls, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and Joseph, whose stories we're now reading in our weekly Torah portions. Their souls were so great, so pure, that we simply cannot refer to ourselves as starting points, imagining how we would act in their place. To actually understand their actions, we need to turn to the Sod, the innermost part of the Torah, which records intentions. Now we can understand the Vilna Gaon's insistence that our attainment in Torah begins with the Sod. Only thus can we fulfill the saying of the sages, the deeds of the fathers should be a sign for the sons. There are many incid incidences that we could look at to illustrate this. But today, I've just picked one incident, which I think is very helpful for us in all our lives. It occurs at the opening of Parshat Vayishlach. And I've chosen it because this one simple encounter turns out to be a deep instruction for us on how to deal with our Yetzirah, our inbuilt selfish nature.
Our father Jacob has just fled from Laban, taking with him his wives, his sons and daughters, and his flocks, all of which he earned through his own hard work. Laban cheated him many times, finally pursuing him. But God intervened, warning Laban not to harm Yaakov. When they meet up, you can see Laban's cheating and his reluctance to let Jacob go in this famous sentence. And Laban answered and said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters, the sons are my sons, the animals are my animals, and all that you see is mine. In other words, he's not letting any single thing out of his domain. He's claiming everything that Jacob has worked for and paid for with the sweat of his brow. He's claiming it as his own. Nevertheless, God protects Yaakov and he leaves the domain of Laban and he's now coming back to the land promised to him. The land promised to Abraham, Yitzhak and Yaakov. This land is the land of Israel. And the Zohar teaches us that it's not just a physical land. What it means is it represents the consciousness which is in affinity of form with God. It is the desire of Yashar El, straight to God. So Yaakov is leaving the domain of Laban who is claiming everything as his, and he wants to move into the consciousness which is directly connected with God. So the next thing that he does is fascinating. He sends messengers to his brother Esau to the Mount of Seir in Edom, announcing his arrival. And this is what it says. And Yaakov sent angels ahead of him to his brother Esau to the land of Seir, the field of Edom, Genesis chapter 32, verse 4. Now, if we're going to look at it from the outer action only, okay, this actually seems a quite crazy thing to do. Yaakov fled the land 22 years earlier because Esau wanted to kill him. He's had no reason to think that Esau's views have changed. If it was you or I, we would be likely just to sneak in quietly, leave sleeping dogs lie. Esau clearly is no longer living in the land of Canaan, but he's in Mount Seir, he's on the other side of the Jordan. It would have been quite easy for Yaakov to have slipped home, stayed silent and not awakened old hurts and grievances. Instead, he sends messengers to Esau informing him that he has returned from a long sojourn with Laban. Why? Again, if we look only at the surface of things, it looks like a deliberate provocation. What is Yaakov's real reason and what can we learn from this? In order to answer this question, we're first going to look at the Zohar, the central book of Kabbalah. And Yaakov sent messengers to Esau. Rabbi Huda opens his discourse as follows. For he will command his angels to guard you. Psalm 91. This scripture is explained by the sages as referring to the fact that when we come into the world, the Yetzirah straightway attaches itself to us, ready to attack us at any moment. 
And this is what the scripture states, sin is crouching at the doorway. What is the sin that is crouching? This is the Yetzirah that is described by Rabbi Ashlag as the will to receive pleasure for ourselves alone. King David says of it in the Psalms, my sin is always before me. Why? Because every day we are liable to sin with our will to receive for ourselves alone before our master. Nevertheless, there is hope. Because although the Yetzirah never leaves us, at the age of Bar Mitzvah or Bat Mitzvah, it is joined by the Yetzirah Tov, the will to come to affinity of form with the Creator, the good intention, the possibility of giving unconditionally. And this comes to us when we want to get purified. And then the Yetzirah Tov, the good inclination, is described as being on our right-hand side and our Yetzirah on the left-hand side. And these are the two angels that accompany us. When we want to get purified, our right-hand line rules and our Yetzirah Tov controls the situation and our Yetzirah is subdued. And then in that circumstance, both angels work to guard and lead the person on his way. For he will command his angels to guard you on all your ways. So in answer to the question, why does Yaakov send messengers to Esau? Rabbi Yehuda responds by describing the forces within us, which are the forces of good, the Yetzirah Tov, and the forces of evil, of egoism, both of which are part of our nature. Rabbi Baruch Shalom Ashlag, the firstborn son of Rabbi Hudalev Ashlag, goes into the process much more deeply. And this is what he says. Regarding the messengers that Yaakov sent to Esau, Rashi comments, he sent him actual angels. We need to ask regarding these angels that Jacob sent to Esau. According to what the sages teach us, Yaakov is the aspect within each one of us that wants to practice Torah and mitzvot. Whereas Esau represents the part within each of us, which is the Yetzirah. Why did Yaakov send actual angels to the Yetzirah? But what does Esau answer? Now, we know from what the Zohar tells us that both Laban and Esau are representations of our Yetzirah within us. Let's have a look at what Rabbi Yehudalev Ashlag taught regarding these two aspects. Laban says to Yaakov, the daughters are my daughters, the sons are mine, the flock is mine, and everything that I see is mine. But Esau responds to Yaakov by saying the exact opposite. He says, ah, I have plenty, my brother, take for yourself what is yours. Okay, that's at the end of the whole encounter. And what does Yaakov do? He pleads with him. He says, please take the gifts that I've given you. And he entreats him and he took. Now, it's true. This is at the end of the process. First of all, Esau responds by sending 400 men to attack him. Yaakov has to wrestle with the angel of Esau in the night. He prays to God. He splits the camp into two. And he sends presents to Esau. And he humbles himself to Esau, calling him my Lord. Even the Torah tells us that he bowed down to Esau. I found that very troubling. I really did. 
I mean, you know, it's okay to sort of send messages to the HR, but to actually bow down to it? This really bothered me. But then the Zohar tells us that those bowing downs that Yaakov did were actually bowing down to the Shekhinah. He wasn't bowing down to Esau. He was bowing down to the Shekhinah. He saw the Shekhinah before him. And so he bowed down to the holy Shekhinah. So his way was right. In which way was it right? Let's find out. Esau says, I have plenty, my brother. Take for yourself what is yours. And then Yaakov entreats him, saying, Take the gifts I've given you. And he entreats him, and he took. To understand all this, we have to look at Rabbi Hudalev Ashlag's explanation. Laban refers to the way the Yitzhahar, will to receive ourselves alone, interacts with us before an action. In other words, before we're about to do a mitzvah for the sake of God, unconditionally, the Yitzhahar comes as an inner voice saying, since all that you're doing isn't for the sake of God anyhow, why bother? What value has your work got in any case? Why get out of bed? Why trouble yourself to go that one step further? Why switch off your smartphone? If, in any case, your work is not lavan, clean, perfect, without any stain on it, is since you know full well that everything you do has got your will to receive yourself mixed in, since it belongs to me anyhow, don't bother to do it. It's got no worth. We have to know this is the voice of the Yetzirah, which wants to stop us doing anything in holiness at all. Okay? It comes to us before we're going to do a mitzvah, and we need to call it by its name. It sounds like an objective analysis of the situation, but it isn't. It's the voice of Laban, the enemy of Yaakov. He's trying to grab hold of us, okay? But like Yaakov, we have to send a message and say, with Laban I dwelt, yet I kept the Torah mitzvot. I need to take pride in the fact that I'm a child of Yaakov. Just as God defended Yaakov and the attacks of Laban, so will he defend me. And we need to pick ourselves up, take pride in ourselves, value ourselves, and do the action of Torah mitzvot that we decided to do. So before the action, we need to gird our loins with strength, raise ourselves up with pride in our work, in the complete trust and confidence in what the sages have said. A person should always occupy himself with Torah and mitzvot, even if it is not for the sake of giving. For from lolishma, that is not for the sake of God, it will come to be for the sake of God. And I have faith that God values my work in whatever form it appears. We need to raise ourselves up with pride that we are the children of Avram, Yitzhak and Yaakov, and whichever form my work appears, it finds favour in the eyes of God. However, in all our work, a person needs to know that there is an order in which we need to work. There needs to be a difference between before the action and after the action. Before the action, we need to ignore the voice of Laban, who wants to claim all our work for himself. But after the action, we need to go to the side of truth. So therefore, we need to awaken the left-hand side. That is the side of truth. 
Now, again, this is this is difficult, okay? Our instinct is to just, you know, let sleeping dogs lie. Imagine that we were doing 100% perfect all the time. Nothing to correct, nothing to change, nothing to, to work on. But Yaakov says, no. And he sends messengers to the Yetzirah. Send the messenger. Tell the Yetzirah, we give our work to him. What does that mean? We're willing now to see where our work is not perfect. We're willing to now to look at how far away we really are. We're willing now to say, I've got something to work on. I want to improve. And so we try to give it to the Sahara. And the Esau says, I've plenty, my brother. But let what you have remain yours. Just rest on your laurels. You're a great tzaddik. You did a mitzvah. There's nothing to do. Why trouble to improve? This inner voice is the other voice of the Yetzirah, the Esau. It wants us to stay stuck, not to move forwards. It does this by telling us we need to relax, not to move another inch. What does Yaakov tell us to do? See the truth. See that our intentions are not pure, that we've got still much to work on. We need to be humble at this point and realize how far we really are for working for the sake of heaven. So then we say to the Yetzirah, take this work, for I see I really was working for you all the time. Take it. And then the brothers depart and separate, and we're free to start our work all over again. And we want that our work really should be pure, that it should be for the sake of coming to affinity form with the Creator, not with our motives mixed in, but our desire for that mustn't let us stop us doing it. So Yaakov departs from Esau and wends his way slowly into the land of Israel, into the consciousness that is Yashar El, straight to God, bringing him eventually to Beit El, the house of God. May we merit to awaken this aspect of Yaakov Avinu, to take pride in what we're doing before the action and be humbly willing to acknowledge the reality of our will to receive for ourselves alone after the action and be happy to start again. This audio recording is brought to you from Nahora School, established by Yadida Cohen for the study of the Kabbalah as taught by Rabbi Yehudalev Ashlag. Studies with Yadida Cohen are available through the Nahora School online. Details at www.nahoraschool.com or www.nahorapress.com.